I don't take a lot of large risks. You know, like I like base hits mm-hmm. and doubles. You know, I don't really need home runs because like and Warren Buffett has he said this as well. Like the number one rule to investing is to not lose money. And the number two rule is to not forget number one. So like I'll rather make a consistent five, seven, eight, nine percent than like try to always go for 15 or 20 um and risk losing, you know, 30 or 50. You know, if you make money fast, you can lose money fast. So like, mm-hmm. I don't necessarily like I went to school for finance and I've spent years understanding things. And like if there was a guaranteed way to never lose money, then like no one would ever lose money. Yo, welcome back. This is Scholar Chips, uh, Tone on the Mic. You know, I know we had a little break. I just had a baby girl. Um, things have been just happening for us and the pod. Um, we have so many great things coming up. Uh, but we would just wanted to first say thank you to all our listeners, all of our people that have been following us and reposting us. Um, it's meant the world to us, you know, and we, we're going to continue to pull out that quality product for you all. And today is no different. Um, today we're interviewing my guy, Jalen Gibson, a D-Town native, currently living in Chicago, working for a multinational investment firm. Yeah, and on this episode, we discuss his upbringing, his career choices, the importance of financial literacy in our community, the Black community specifically, and maintaining a winner's mindset in anything and everything that you do. Yeah, so with that, let's get to it. My God, Jalen. Um, just super, super uh, grateful for you just spending your Friday afternoon with us. So we definitely appreciate that. No, I, I appreciate you guys for having me, honestly. Uh, one thing I love is candid conversations. And, I, you know, I love connecting with like-minded individuals. Um, and honestly, like, this gives me a reason to not be outside right now. You know? <laughs> I feel like every time I leave the house, it's like 150 here. Yeah, 200. 300, bro. Yeah. It just adds up really quick. The reason I, I wanted you to come to the pod, one, I think you, uh, you've uh, even though we, you know, haven't connected in person, you've always been just a genuine dude, and you always been willing to talk or help me out however you can. Um, and most of all, you're a young black professional who's like in, at the, you know, towards the beginning of your career. So like, you know, just given that freshness and that that uh that new vibe, you know, it's kind of what I what I wanted to bring uh, bring to the pod, you know. Uh, just to start off, like, tell us about yourself. Like, who are you, uh, your upbringing, things like that? Yeah. Um, well, my name's Jalen. I'm 25, born and raised in Detroit, Michigan. Uh, so, unfortunately, you know, with that comes a, a lifetime of Lions fandom. But <laughs> I'd like to think it's it's uh, made me a resilient and, and persistent individual. So, in college, I, uh, I majored in finance joined Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated um, in my junior year. And I was also very involved in, you know, different financial organizations and clubs. Uh, so I went to Grand Valley State University in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Uh, and I was involved in, uh, we have like a, our school of business is called Seedman, uh, the Seedman School of Business. So I was uh, a portfolio manager for the Seedman Investment Portfolio Organization. Uh, so I like managed all of the tech stocks in like that organization's portfolio. And then I also was a research analyst for like the school's investment endowment fund uh, for a little over a year. And I did a, a few internships. I interned at like a, a FinTech company in Grand Rapids for a little bit over a year. I interned in, P- at, uh, in Pittsburgh at a bank for a summer. And then I did like a local commercial credit internship in like the local Grand Rapids area. Uh, so I graduated at the end of, uh, in December, 2019 and moved here to Chicago with my girlfriend at the time. And- Always the worst, bro. At the time, <laughs> uh, taught me a lot though, taught me a lot. Yeah. Uh, and COVID happened and then, you know, all of like the George Floyd uh, and like so, soon as I moved here to Chicago, it was like, it would seem like the world fell apart. Um, and that journey, I've, I've been here for two and a half years. It, it feels like it's, it's been almost like five lifetimes. Yeah. No, I think that the past three, three, four years, three years has definitely felt like that. It's, it's been a, a learning moment for sure. 
Um, but just a step back, like you said, you're from Detroit. Like, tell us about like you know, are you your family upbringing, growing up in the D, like all that. So early on, I'd say I as a kid, it's really hard to not have fun. You know, like probably up until like six or seven, everything in life is great, and you don't have no responsibilities, and mm-hmm. you know, so like for me, at that point in my life. Uh, my family was very close in a way, and we were a lot bigger than, you know, we are right now. But also, uh, this was like early 2000s, and like the Pistons were, uh, you know, that was the, not the bad boys, but like the the Chauncey, she, Rip. So for those four to seven, eight years in the 2000s, you know, I grew up going to Pistons games. I, I grew up, my mom works at Comerica uh, Bank and like operations. So uh, we would always get, you know, tickets to Comerica Park to watch the Tigers. So I uh, grew up watching sports, played sports. Uh, my parents were married uh, for about 30 years. My father passed away a week before my junior year of college started. Damn. Um, Sorry to hear that, man. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I will say is it's in a way, it's a little bit of life, though. Uh, and that, that's one thing I've, I've learned. Not to get too dark, but you touched upon family. So I lost a couple of brothers as well. So I had two brothers um, and I lost them when I first moved here to Chicago uh, and two of my closest cousins or one cousin, actually uh in like the last three years as well um and you know growing up my uncles you know two of my closest uncles uh around 10 or 11 you know they both got sick uh both of them you know ended up passing away so i think early on everything was great and around like eight to really like 23 it just seemed like, man, I started losing everybody left and right and left and right. And I think the process of that and me, you know, being forced into a role of responsibility and and almost being like the patriarch has, Mm -hmm. it's been like an unintentional journey of self-discovery and like what matters in life and, you know, like finding the joy in the mundane, but also like, you know, going back to, you know, losing my father, I don't think that I am who I am today and I'm able to like move through the world the way I do now. I don't even, I wouldn't even like major in finance, you know, and like had the drive to, um, to, to go back to school. You know, I was going to drop out of college. Uh, a few of my, a few of my friends know, my mom knows, uh, we didn't have the money to like send me back for junior year. We couldn't even take out loans. Uh, my dad, you know, he was, he had cancer and, he couldn't work. It's just my mom. And honestly, like the thing that allowed me to go back to school was my father passing away and we got, you know, a little bit of money for, you know, from his life insurance policy. And the week after we buried him, like junior year of of college starts and I'm like, all right, like I gotta, I gotta make some money, you know, like I, like, and I majored in finance, uh, taught myself, fundamental and technical analysis and kind of just threw everything that I had into learning everything that I didn't know. Uh, And that semester, I uh, ran for portfolio manager of my school's investment portfolio organization. I had never bought or traded a stock ever in my life. You know, this is like a 45 year old investment organization, investment portfolio organization managing a portfolio of a couple hundred thousand. Um, and I got elected, you know, uh, from, you know, the, the 200 members and the finance faculty, uh, and I served in that position for, for a year. And that was kind of like my spring springboard into the world of finance. But one thing I always knew was like, you know, if I'm, if I have the opportunity to make something of myself and make some money and, you know, I love Detroit, but I always knew I got to get up out of here and like, I didn't know where it was, but like I knew I'm 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 meant to go see something different and, mm-hmm. and experience something bigger. So uh and here I am. 
Man, that was one. I mean, I, I think I think I know why uh, Michael wanted to connect this. I have a not a similar story. Um, I always think that tragedy is something you can't compare. But like, I lost my brother. I lost my brother and my cousin when I was uh, when they were 15, 15, six, no, fifteen and seventeen. And my dad passed uh, right uh, the year I was supposed to graduate from law school, twenty eighteen. Um, and I owe a lot of who I am today to one, my brother, like my brother's death and my cousin's death, because without them doing that, I don't know if I had the same drive, right? Like, I don't know if I become who I become. In fact, I kind of was aimlessly just hoping I would figure it out, you know, at that time. And they kind that, although that tragic, that tragedy happened, it pushed me to a level that, you know, I never thought I would get to what you just said. Very courageous. Like, Thank you. Thank great you. story, I, man. I, I just want to say I uh, I appreciate you, honestly. Um, yeah. I think, and there's a book that uh, actually Michael recommended to me that I, I read last year by uh, Brene Brown, uh, Daring Greatly. You know, it talks about, Larry, and I'm pretty sure everyone. Larry, yeah, Larry Letter. Brene Brown's head talks. Yeah. And, uh, but it definitely talks about, you know, like the power of, of vulnerability. Um, and for a long time, like I was not able to speak about, I can speak articulately about everything in the world, except things that had to do with like me internally, you know? And like, I think me moving here to Chicago and the world slowing down and like more things compounding. And I really had the time to like, sit down and look in the mirror and like have to like figure things out that like those in those 20 something years before like I was just I, I had no idea I, I was even struggling with certain things you know um but I like to be I like to be myself you know fully at all mm -hmm. times and and uh you know not hide from what I think I'm afraid of or, or what may be too much or too little from others. So one thing I was curious about is uh, where did you go to high school? Um, and then how did you sort of figure out uh, where to go to college? Uh, yeah. So uh, I went to Lakeview high school in uh, St. Clair Shores. Uh, it's like about, depending on where you're at in the city, 10 to 15 minutes, you know, out from, from Detroit. Uh, and honestly, in terms of going to college, so my dad, I think he, I don't, I don't think he graduated high school. My brothers, you know, they got, uh, my brothers and all my cousins, you know, they got their GEDs. So college was never as, I was always very intelligent and had good grades, but I, you know, I always played sports as well. Um, but I, I grew up knowing that, you know, my parents always told me at 18, you either got to go to college or you got to go to the army. Um, you know, but you, you're not staying here. And they was telling me this since, since five. So I knew like, all right, at 18, I'm gonna have to figure something out. Uh, but I'll be honest, I didn't realize how almost, in, I didn't realize that I could have actually like went to really good schools and like done well in school until like probably after I, two years, three years into college, you know, and like, honestly, more now that I, and graduated and into, you know, the working world and working in high finance um, because college was never like super duper pushed on me. So in terms of Grand Valley, uh, it was two or three hours from home. So I kind of, you know, got the going away for, for school experience, but it wasn't too far to where, you know, like I can't go back if, if need be. Um, it wasn't super expensive and, you know, like I knew like we didn't really have money like that. And, um, I took a campus visit and like, it was beautiful. And honestly, I was like, all right, like, this is, this is cool. Uh, so, you know, I ended up going to Grand Valley state and a few of my friends from high school at the time, you know, you know, and a few people I grew up playing like football and baseball with, we all graduated high school around the same time. Some of us from different schools and, uh, a couple of my boys got scholarships to to play basketball at Grand Valley as well. So I was like, all right, you know, this this works. We might as well all just go out here and do this. Um, and it ended up, you know, I guess working out fine. But like I said, in hindsight, I had no idea. 
my academic potential in mm -hmm. terms of like, you know, I, I had professors, I remember I was in African-American studies class one day and, uh, or no, I had a class perspectives on black males. Uh, and the, the professor was uh, Professor Rick Stevenson. He's an alpha as well. And we had to write a research paper on like the prison industrial complex or something like that. And, you know, I, I always grew up reading books. So I had been reading like, and I used to hate this as a kid, but like my, my parents, my mom would make me read like Roots in like fifth grade and <laughs> write a book report about it. And I would have to stand in the living room and like basically read the report and have it memorized, but like she's grading me on my posture and my, my diction and all this stuff. But I grew up, you know, like reading and knowing about these things. So, you know, I wrote this paper and he called me, the professor, he called me into his office hours and he's like, man, like, why, why did you come to this school? You know, like, you know, you could have, you could have went anywhere. And I really didn't know I could have went any, anywhere, you know, like, honestly, because no one ever told me that. Um, so, yeah, I, I went to Grand Valley for four, four and a half years. Uh, Grand Rapids is a beautiful place. You know, I ended up having a great time and it, uh, it allowed me opportunities to one also experience being uncomfortable in a way because like growing up in Detroit and and in Metro Detroit, you know, like Detroit for those who have spent you know a little time there, it's like I want to say eighty five or eighty six percent black, right? Like like the actual city, mm -hmm. um, and even like Metro Detroit is it's it's more diverse, but it's still being in West Michigan is like super, you know, far right, conservative, Christian, Lutheran. And, you know, my freshman year was the, the uh, Trump versus Hillary election. As oh, well. it was going you know, crazy like, out there, especially in Michigan, especially yeah. in Michigan. Yeah. So that was crazy. like a whole you know, experience for me in terms of like, all right, like I'm not, I'm not just in my environment anymore with my people, you know, and I have to like learn how to be multiple things to multiple people and, and move in crowds and, and be who I need to be, but also like remain myself internally, um, especially working in finance, you know, like there aren't too many of us in this world anyway, you know, so like, I, I might've, there might've been less than five black finance majors in the school of business, you know, so out of, you know, a couple thousand people. Um, so I will say like that experience definitely helped me to become comfortable uh, being alone amongst many, you know, in a way. Um, I have my, my circle of, you know, six to eight friends who, you know, we're deciding to go down this journey together. And I'm also, you know, going through stuff at home. Like I know my dad's sick. My brother, you know, at the time was, you know, like going through some things in and out of, uh, in and out of prison. And I was like, you know, what? like, I really gotta like, like, bro, I'm not, I'm not here to not win. You know, like I'm, mm -hmm. I'm here to like, I'm here to win like bad and beat everybody and everything. Like, and I, I don't care if I, if I don't gotta sleep, I don't gotta eat, like I'm here to win. You, you go to college. You major in finance and then uh, you start working in corporate America. Can you talk a little bit about uh, your experience working in finance uh, so far? Yeah. Yeah. So um, I'll I'll bring it back a little bit just to to college and how I started getting, I guess, finance opportunities and finance roles. Uh, I want to say in 2017, uh, I got an internship at Mercantile Bank of Michigan uh, as a commercial credit intern. So that kind of was like my foot in the door. So I did that for a few months. But the day after I actually accepted that internship offer, I was flown to Pittsburgh to interview for uh, internships at PNC. Uh, so I, I interviewed for uh, independent technology risk management internship in like their commercial bank. And uh, they extended me an offer, but that wasn't going to start until like the next summer. And so I started my internship in my junior year at Mercantile Bank in November. And I already like had an internship lined up 
in Pittsburgh for the next summer. So I worked there from November to like May and then I, you know, turned in my resignation. That summer I interned in Pittsburgh and then I came back in August before I graduated in that December, uh, PNC reached back out to me and they said, hey, you know, we remember you interned with us, you know, a couple years ago. Uh, we still think very highly of you. We'd love to fly you to Pittsburgh again and uh, interview you for uh, a few uh, a few full-time positions because, you know, you, you know you're going to graduate soon. So flew out there. Uh, I think I did four interviews and I, I got four offers, honestly. Um, and I had no idea where they were going to like send me until after I accepted the offer. So I accepted uh, an offer at PNC and like their corporate and institutional banking development program. And they said, okay, cool. We're going to send you to Chicago. And I was like, all right, cool. Um, so that's how I got my, my foot in the door, I'd say here in Chicago, but also like in my full-time career. Uh, so I did that. So I graduated, moved to Chicago, February 1st, 2020. Uh, I met a lot of people. I did a lot of, you know, things on the side, trying to break into higher levels of finance because like coming here to Chicago, I was exposed to a lot of things in the world of finance that I didn't even know existed. Right. Cause like, you know, I just became a finance major at like 20, 21, 20. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that kind of turned up my, uh, my drive and my ambition meter a little bit, you know? So I started grinding and, and figuring out, you know what, like I won making 50, 60 K as a kid. Like I thought that was a lot of money. And then, you know, I'm, I'm making 50, 60 K and I'm like, Oh, this is not enough. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I also started realizing, you know, like kind of going even back to the school thing, but like even just with my own abilities, like what I'm capable of, I know, like I have the drive, and like the determination and, and a lot of them don't. So like, let me just keep pushing myself. Uh, so just through networking and, and building up my resume, building up my LinkedIn over like the next two years, I, I was given an opportunity. Uh, I was reached out to by a, a pretty large bank, you know, on LinkedIn and they, uh, they reached out and said, Hey, you know, do you want to come over as an associate? I was a year and a half into like my analyst program and I still had a year and a half left. And like the position they were hiring me for at minimum requires like three years of experience. And I was like, of course, you know, so they, they hired me and that was in March earlier of this year. So that's fantastic. Can you, and obviously you don't have to, to name the, the name of the institution, but can you just talk a little bit more about uh, what your current role looks like right now? Um, obviously just getting to know you a little bit, but, um, you're under, it sounds like you're an underwriter. Uh, what kind of deals are you underwriting? And, and really, uh, you can get as technical as you want, as you want to get over the next couple of minutes. Part of my job is, uh, underwriting. So I'd say that's maybe like 35% of what I do, but I'm, um, an originations associate. So my, my main job is actually originating, uh, loans in the commercial and corporate bank and sometimes, uh, investment bank for like a, a certain product that I work with. What's the underlying security? Revolvers, term loan Bs, okay. uh, debt and credit securities. Mm -hmm. So uh, usually revolvers and term loan Bs, I'd say. And then I work in syndications as well. So if it's like a big enough revolver, like let's say like 900 million or a billion and up, I'll work, we'll, the team that I work on will work on syndicating that out to you know eight, eight or nine different banks. Um, but yeah, as an originations associate, I assist like the senior originators and regional managers and executive directors with bringing in new relationships, you know, cultivating those relationships and seeing kind of like what these companies may need without them explicitly telling us, you know, and, and offering that to them and, as well as cross-selling different opportunities. And then once we bring it in, you know, that's passed off to the underwriters who, you know, help figure out the risk rating and, and, and the LGD and all that good stuff. Uh, and then I also like have almost like a portfolio management role. So I have a couple, a uh, couple large companies in my portfolio where I, you know, I'll, I'll attend like the annual bankers meeting and, and just, you know, see what's going on with them occasionally, make sure 
the credit profile of the company isn't, you know, going bad and make sure, you know, the, the our collateral that we're lending on. So it, it is a securitized. Some of the, the, the relationships that I originate are cash flow, but mainly it's for middle market companies and upper middle market companies that let's say they don't always have positive cash flow, but they have asset rich balance sheets, right? So uh, we'll leverage their inventory, accounts receivable, uh, real estate, intellectual property as basically a collateral and lend on a certain percentage of those assets. And, you know, if they don't, if they don't repay, then, you know, we collect on that, which rarely ever happens. So a lot of times I'll be traveling to companies, making pitch books, uh, doing deal screens and pitching them internally to like our own credit committees so that they they'll give us the go. Um, there's a lot of golf, you know, a lot of like <laughs> happy hours, yeah. shaking babies or kissing babies, shaking, kissing hands. Babies, shaking hands. Yeah. Shaking yeah. babies is a little different. <laughs> Very different. You know what I always think about uh, anytime uh, we're in these professions and we don't come from like, you know, wealth like that is that when we're dealing with like Fortune 500 companies and you're dealing with a portfolio, like how big is your portfolio that you you manage, you think? Um, or what's the range, I guess? It's, I'd say it's, it's, it's three companies, but like combined their annual revenue is probably like 1.5 billion. And so and no one, no one's ever heard of these companies either, like outside of me, which is random, like their companies I, to make the most random thing. I, but I think it's wild. Like, I remember when I first started working there, I was like, yeah, I'm on this uh, $40 million deal. And they were like, oh, it's a small deal. And I was yeah. like, $40 million is not a goddamn small anything. Give me yeah. 40 million. Like, you know what I'm saying? But I think it's crazy that, like, we find our, ourselves in these positions where we're playing with, not playing, with, we're working with companies. And it's like big money, right? Like, $1.5 is nothing to snuff at where you're just like, oh. You know, that's that's like people's livelihood. That's that's a lot of pressure. And I guess what was your I guess uh, like I know what I'm doing kind of thing, that aha moment. Yeah, it changes like your perception of like what money even is, you know, yeah. and like what's possible. And, you know, I, I see I see companies, I see people like make seven, eight million dollars making the most random thing or doing the most random thing. And it's like. And you, like you said, that's a very small deal. You know, like they're not even, you're not even in a commercial bank yet at $5 million. Like they won't even talk to you. Um, yeah. And I was like, man, like, let me just start thinking bigger. Um, I would say there's been a continual process over like the course of this year where I'm realizing that I am very good at this. And I yeah. think at a point, everyone has the hard skills, right? Uh, the technical skills, the, you know, the Excel spreadsheets and all the other stuff. But I think like the level of finance that I work at, no one really went to like a school like Grand Valley. You know, a lot of these kids went to Northwestern or UChicago, or they went to big 10 schools or they went to Duke. Mm -hmm. um, or some of them may have even went to like a, a an Ivy League. So like, I think for me, not really coming from the same socioeconomic background, I've had to work a lot harder before getting here. So I know so much because I've had to know so much. One thing you said that I love, you said, I'm here to win. Yeah. <laughs> I, I thought that was profound. And I guess I'm wondering, it's a two part question. Uh, the first part would be, what habits have you been building or have you built to help you win? Uh, and then the second part of that is, uh, what does success ultimately look like for you? Yeah. Um, two really good questions, I'd say. At a young age, like my parents instilled so many, so many things in me, making my own lunch every morning, washing my clothes, folding them, doing the doing doing the laundry, cleaning the house. We had a garden in the backyard. Uh, so, you know, tending to the tomato plants and cutting the grass, shoveling the snow, edging it. And I'm doing all this since like God six. <laughs> I couldn't play sports if I had less than a B in any class ever. My dad was my baseball coach for, you know, like seven, eight years. So um, he never like let me like not 
lead or not be at the front of the line for a drill, and especially in football too. He wouldn't. He, he wasn't my coach, but he would show up to practices, and you know, he always said early on, like, "Don't let me see you not jump to the front of the line in the tackling drills, or don't let me see you see any, you know, see you come middle of the pack or last, you know, when y'all are running around the field." Um, and they always instilled in me too, you know, do it right the first time, and you won't have to do it again. And having conversations with God and having even conversations with myself and being honest with myself about who I am and what I'm not and asking God, you know, to like continually give me clarity for, uh, you know, his will in my life and, and who I am to be and, and who I'm not to be. It is kind of surreal, like how limited, uh, you know, our understanding of like school money, everything is when you come from the inner city. Yeah, you know. or, or even just like the importance of it. And like, once you get there, there's more than just like getting a major and going to class, like the, like getting internships and being involved in clubs and going to office mm -hmm. hours. Like a lot of us miss out on those things because we don't really like know or we choose the wrong major that's not really gonna get us paid. There's definitely two Americas that like, that we all live within. And like, like I said, even you know, like some of my white friends in high school or some of like my white coworkers now, like what what we as black people consider the middle class and what like everyone else considers middle class, like I'm just learning is like two completely different things. Like someone will say like, oh, I grew up upper middle class and like their combined family household income was like 300K. And I'm thinking we was like upper middle class and we was, they was combined, my parents was making like 60, 70K. You know, and I'm like, yeah. and I'm like, yo, we living in two different Americas. I'm sitting here with a guy, you know, from Detroit that has this financial acumen and that finance lens, uh, economics and finance. I'm assuming you, you probably will versed in both. Uh, talk to me about the state of Detroit. What happened back when they filed bankruptcy back in like 2013? Just in like, what was that like um, through your lens? What happened? What went wrong? And then how does Detroit sort of make that resurgence? Yeah. Uh, that's a good question. So, so I'll say, I think Detroit's where Detroit is now. I think you have to go back first to like the '60s, right? Like, one Detroit at a certain time was maybe the second or third largest uh, city in America. Um, you know, it being like the automotive capital uh, with the big three automotive manufacturers. A lot of our family, and that's how like my family ended up getting to Detroit. A lot of families came from the South in like the 50s and 60s. And, you know, you could work, you could be 17, 18 and work at Chrysler or Ford or GM and like make a killing, you know, and like support two families, you know, and send your kids to college and and uh, retire with a pension. So like a lot of folks kind of came up there for that. And I think over time as uh, global trade, you know, became more of a thing and like a lot of uh, jobs became automated. And a lot of these things run in conjunction with how our society is set up. It's set up uh, or a capitalistic free market society, right? And the number one goal of capitalism is shareholder return, right? You want to maximize shareholder return. Uh, and how do you do that? You cut costs, you become more efficient. So over time, they're automating a way, they're finding ways to become more efficient in making, you know, uh, automobiles, right? And a lot of that might be outsourcing things to different countries or uh, automating away certain parts being made and making robots, cutting people, because like a, a robot never takes a sick day, right? But when you make, when there, there's an entire city of a, a couple million people that's been built around one industry and one industry only, and we're starting to see this a little bit with like San Fran, right? Uh, but this is kind of like the story of a lot of Rust Belt cities. Like Detroit was really only, only built around the automotive industry. And a lot of black people from the South kind of came up there to work in the automotive industry. Um, and when the automotive industry started to, in conjunction with free trade, Right. And, and globalization starts to kind of find ways to not have to pay people. Right. And, and make these things go away. Like there, there weren't too many other lanes for people to turn to. 
Uh, then, you know, in conjunction with that, you got the riots, right? It, which whatever white people at the time were in Detroit, like the rest of them, they decided, you know what, like I'm, I'm fleeing to the suburbs, you know, and historically they call it like white flight. Like Detroit's like very segregated between the inner city eight mile and and, and from eight mile in, and then like everything else above eight mile is the suburbs or different like suburban metro areas of Detroit. Mm -hmm. So literally within like the city limits after like the seventies was like literally just the black people that couldn't afford to like leave the city and go and work nowhere else. Because also Detroit isn't really built on because it was, you know, the home of the automotive industry. They never really invested in a, like a real public transportation network. Right. So like you really couldn't go nowhere. You know, like the black folks really couldn't like take trains and buses like that that were like efficient, like out to the suburbs to work. So I think that kind of like set the the set the foundation for what we saw throughout the 90s and the 2000s of mismanagement, corruption. Um, I think the Kwame thing, like really like Kwame, we, yeah. man, we loved Kwame. Like, Kwame yeah, what a yeah. A lot, man. A lot of a, a lot of people stole from the city over the years, right? And we didn't really have the tax base left to make money on anything. But also, like Detroit is a very large city, like just by landmass. Like I don't think people realize um, I, you can fit Manhattan, San Francisco, and Boston combined within the city limits of Detroit. Like it's like very so like you go from two three million people in the '60s to six hundred thousand people, you know, in like the 2000s, but you still have the landmass of like when it what you know you can't really maintain that, and there's no other main industry for people to work in. So there's a lot of things too. I mean, you got the the war on drugs, and you know when when I think certain drugs kind of hit, especially like crack, hit a lot of black communities, you know, like it was just one thing after another, honestly. Uh, I will say Detroit now, um, there's been a lot of investment even since I was like a teenager, uh, at least downtown, I'll say, definitely downtown. There's been a lot of intentional effort of getting like companies downtown. Uh, I remember when, when, the, when the Steelers and the Seahawks played the Super Bowl in Detroit in 2005, um like they really kind of had to like do like a, a cosmetic almost fake makeover of like downtown because it was a lot of our downtown was like empty and abandoned and boarded up um so to see it where it's at now is definitely a beautiful thing uh it's a little bit weird because it's, it's not the detroit that i grew up on but like maybe uh, that's not always a bad thing you know i'd say um the rest of the city i can't say has been invested in as much but I have hope, you know. I, I that's 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 all we can have. It's not every day that you come across, unfortunately, yet, right? Uh, black people that are in finance. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I guess I'm wondering, what do you think it'll take to improve uh, sort of the makeup of the finance industry? One side of it is exposure. I think you know, like we grow up going into things that we've seen. You know, and a lot of people, you know, like if you, if you grow up idolizing and seeing a lot of athletes, like you want to be an athlete or you want to be an entertainer or, but a lot of us don't see like successful black businessmen or investment bankers or private equity associate. Like we don't even know what that is, you know, our venture mm -hmm. capital. So like, I think one, it's exposure, but two, um, I think it's going to take more of us to, it, it's tough because like, you know, we get in college and a lot of us, we don't really know like that some of these things that we are passionate about, like are going to not really pay us money or the importance of taking those four years as serious as they are. Right. If you could just tell us the importance of financial empowerment and in investing from like, you know, brown and black people in your, in your opinion. Yeah. I mean, I'd say like, it's, it's more than important, man. It's like, it's imperative. Like generationally, we are so many generations behind right now, like in terms of wealth and wealth accumulation, but even like in terms of where things are going, you know, like mm -hmm. I, I think this disparity is going to get 
is going to get worse and bigger than like the wealth gap, I think is the knowledge gap of like what to do and even like where to do it. Yeah. Um, it's very, I think a lot of times in our families and our communities, we'll have like parents or sometimes relatives that'll be working into their 60s, 70s, 80s, or like, you know, sometimes we might have to like take care of them. But it's, and I didn't realize this was a common thing, but like a lot of my coworkers now, you know, that, that are white, like their parents retired in their late 40s or in their 50s, right? Like, and a lot of it is just like delayed grad. Well, a lot of that's like generational wealth and like things that we don't mm -hmm. have to like get into, but there are certain ways that we can kind of like close the gap. And one, it is knowledge. I think that's the biggest thing. Like everyone can't start off with money, but we do have like, we do got time to read sometimes. So um, understanding the value of compound interest, right? Like I think as black people, we've had a tendency for good reasons, right? Historically to like not trust financial institutions and I'm not putting my money in the, I'm not investing. What if, what if the recession happened? But like, realistically, a lot of us don't have much to, you know, like we not, if, if we lose our couple little thousand, like we're not going to really lose our couple thousand. If our 2000 goes to 1800, you know, like that's, that's, not as bad as that 2000 sitting in the room and getting eaten up by inflation, you know, like mm -hmm. over the next five, 10 years. Right. But like over, over on a macro scale, I think like the S and P 500 index returns anywhere from what, like eight to 10% historically yearly, like different periods, it's more different periods is less. But like, I think since the start, it's around like, maybe 10%. And I think the last few years, uh, 10 years has probably skewed it a little bit. In our bank account, like we're not going to get maybe a high yield savings account, you might get 3%, right? But like inflation, as we see right now is, is, is what, like 10%. So every year you lose 10% of the purchasing power of your dollar. And you're getting less than 1% in the average savings account, right? But there are people and there's like, I've made, you know, in certain months before, like, especially like trading options, like 50 to a hundred percent, you know, like it's, it's, and I think too, sometimes like we look at it as unattainable, but we just have to like one, make it a habit, you know, like make it like going to the gym and waking up and brushing your teeth, like $300 a month. You start at 23. If you invest, I want to say $320 a month or $300 a month in the S&P 500 index fund, which is a index fund that like basically tracks the top 500 companies and in, in publicly traded in America. Um, and you get, let's say, an average return of 7% yearly. When you're 60 or 65, you should have around like a million or $1.2 million, right? And that's like $300 a month. And I know like a lot of people don't have 300 a month, but you have 100 a month, maybe. You got 50 a month if you got job. Like we waste so much money on a lot of things. And I'm saying that because I have wasted money on those things. And sometimes brunch, bro. It'd be the brunch they get you every time. bottles, <laughs> yeah. Uber Eats. What I'm doing now is just setting it and forgetting it kind of thing. Yeah. That's um, the key right there is automating it, like yeah. automate savings, automate investments. Like, don't ever look at it. Yeah. Warren Buffett always says, you know, like in, invest when other buy when others are are fearful, right, and sell when others are greedy, right? Because mm -hmm. like, it don't make no sense to 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 sell when everything goes down because you you you're not gonna make the money back anyway. So, true. The goal is the long term. Yeah, like I listened to a bunch of your episodes and your Coffee and Capital podcast um and one thing that you talked about is just you went to toronto mm -hmm. and like it changed your perspective and mm -hmm. i guess and when i look at your social media platform it's all about travel or not all about travel but a good amount of it is is traveling tell us about like why you think traveling and exposure is important to like kids from the inner city growing up yeah i mean i i think I've gone so crazy in the last few years on traveling because like I never really traveled as a kid. Um, seeing how large the world is, sometimes like you understand a lot more as possible, right? And like I, there's certain things that like you aren't, you won't 
believe are is, is possible until you like actually see it, right? And like me and six of my friends went to Afro Nation Portugal. I'm meeting dudes that are from every country in Africa and they look just like me and talk just like me and walk just like me. And we could have been brothers in a past life, right? And like, I'm like, oh, there are me's like all over in, in every, every corner of the world. Um, and I think like being African-American, sometimes we have, we're African without like real connection to Africa and we're American without like real connection to America. Right. So I think traveling is very important and it's imperative because books teach you one thing, but like man writes books, right? Like you got to see certain things to like really understand what's possible, but understand who you are and who you're not. Like going to Portugal and seeing so many things have been built in the 1400s by the Moors, right? Mm -hmm. And like understanding like how powerful the Moors were and you know, I've been to different places in Europe and like they don't always, they're not always as welcoming to black people, right? But like in Portugal and especially like Lisbon, it was almost as if they had been used to black people being there for a long, you know, like, cause we historically, the Moors like were all throughout Europe, but especially in Portugal, you know, like they built a lot of Portugal and taught them a lot of things. Mm -hmm. But that's not something like you really understand until you see it and experience it financial literacy and like generational wealth and safety and security is very important. Mm -hmm. But like, for me, the, the biggest thing is, is, is leaving a legacy, right. And like leaving stories. And I like to really invest a lot in experiences. I like to experience like a rich, fulfilling life. Um, cause I work hard. So like, I'm, I'm a work hard. I'm a save a little, I'm a invest. I invest more than I save. I try to, I still try to save, but and I try to experience, you know, um, because when you look back, like the experiences are really like, I remember those things a lot more than the money I saved and the money I made from, you know, like trading stock options or, true, you know, when I bought Apple in 2015. Um, and, a lot, and and it gives me like a different perspective on it, even investing in, in what to invest in as well, right? Like. I want to give our listeners a bit of free game here. Uh, again, we've got a, got a sharp financial mind uh, that keeps preaching about the importance of knowledge. And so I want to know what kind of resources and books are you sort of tapping into or, or you would recommend to people that want to really build up that financial acumen? So I have a Bloomberg subscription and a Wall Street Journal subscription. Um, so every day I, I usually wake up and kind of just like I, I, I keep a pulse on like what's going on, you know, like in the world. I'm, I'm not too I don't like to see like where the Dow closed that today or, you know, like what uh, what the Nasdaq's doing. But a lot of my friends work in finance or law or politics or like tech adjacent. So I I think naturally I began to like just surround my myself and my circle around with like black people like myself who we naturally sitting here chilling talking about like monetary and fiscal policy. Really, I think it's just people. I'm a big people person. Like people that work in different industries, I like to just talk to them about the things that they see in real life and like the business trends and kind of like learn from them. If you want to just get like a good baseline understanding of uh, some of the terminology, Investopedia is really good. Um, a Random Walk Down Wall Street's a very good book. Um, the Richest Man in Babylon, I recommend. The Intelligent Investor, The Laws of Wealth is another great one. Mm. But I will say like finance is very much, as much as it's a money thing, it's, uh, it's a people industry a little bit more, like in terms of people and psych psychology. So like one thing I've always loved is books and podcasts around uh, our behavior, right? And like why people are the way that they are, why we make decisions. So like books that I recommend are uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People, um, Atomic Habits, As a Man Thinketh, uh, The Laws of Human Nature by Robert, uh, Robert Greene. That's a really good one. Um, Outwitting the Devil is a good one. And then the last one I recommend is uh, Why Should White Guys Have All the Fun? Why should white guys have a fun? That's definitely yeah, a, a must read. Yeah. Yeah. 
how would you sell 16-year-old Jalen on a career in finance? I would sell 16-year-old Jalen on a career in finance as, you know, it's it's like a, a 10, 20-year crash course on running a business, but also like really how the economy works and how people work, right? And finance is an industry where you have to network. You're only as good as your network. So like, I was very introverted as a kid. And I think me going down this route amongst like other things I've done has like forced me to have to get out of my shell and talk to people and really listen to them and understand them and figure out, you know, like who they are, what makes them tick and, and how I can provide value. In, in the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, I don't know if either of you have, have, have read it, but uh, the author, he, he says that at baseline, everyone has two desires. Everyone you come across has two desires, the desire to feel important and the desire to feel appreciated. And a lot of what everyone does is, is kind of stemming to like the desire to feel important and the desire to feel appreciated. And a lot of times, if you figure out upon meeting someone like how you can make them feel important and make them feel appreciated, especially in the world of finance, where like a lot of these people just want to feel like the biggest man in the room, but um, making people feel important and, and feel appreciated and having genuine interest in them is almost like a superpower. It's an asset. I've got a series of uh, rapid fire questions right. that I want to ask you just so that our listeners can get to know you a little better. One book that has been uh, super impactful in your life. Why should white guys have all the fun? Favorite place to travel? Lisbon, Portugal. One word to describe your legacy? Magnetic. 